Good morning, I'm Shelby, and I'll be reading Psalm 2, that's on page 448 on the Bibles around the room. When I'm finished reading, I'm going to say this is the reading of God's word, and you'll respond, thanks be to God. So Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and fulfilling every promise. You sent your son to defeat evil, death, and we look forward to his coming again to make all things new. God, help us to live out our lives honoring you and becoming more like you. Open our eyes and our ears and what you need us to hear today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Shelby. Please be seated, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. You guys all getting ready for Christmas? Not very many people, huh? <laughs> I am. Uh, yesterday, I got our Christmas lights up, so like we're officially ready. I almost died. I'm terrified of heights, and so I prayed a lot while I was up there, and I'm glad to be here preaching the word to you today. <laughs> So if you're new to our church, welcome. We like to go through books of the Bible, and uh, we're actually in a time of the year where we call it Advent. And uh, what this means is the word Advent means arrival of a very important person. And so uh, during Christmas time, it's the Advent season. It's where the church uh, gathers to set their mind towards the arrival of Jesus, God's Son. And that's what we've been doing. So we're taking a break from going through the book of Romans to just think about God's son being given to us during Advent. We've been asking the question, who is this child? As we look around and we see uh, paintings of a baby in a manger, as we see nativity scenes with shepherds and kings gathered around a baby, as we hear about songs about this baby on the radio, we ask, who is this child? Who is this child called the Christ that all of this holiday is named after? Who is this child that the whole world stops everything to celebrate him? Who is this child? And what we find from Psalm 2 today is that this child is none other than God's son. He's God's son. And that God desires for us, it says in verse 12 of of, of Psalm 2, God desires that we would kiss the son. Now what that means is that that's kingly language. God has given us his son that we would kiss him, that we would, to to kiss the son would be to hail him as king. And you cannot hail him as king and make war on him at the same time. To kiss the son is to pay homage to the king. It's to kneel before him. It's to draw near to show him reverent 
affection. And this is God's desire for all of us. And this is God's plea for us at Christmas. God giving us this baby in a manger is God saying, hail my king. Kiss the son. Now, Psalm 2 at the first reading might not seem like a Christmas text, but it really is because it is about God giving us his son. And it tells of God's first coming and it also alludes to his second coming. Now, if you're new to the Bible, that might sound a little interesting to you. But as Christians, we believe this, that the Bible teaches that in the beginning, God created everything and it was perfect and good, but humans rebelled against God and fell away from him. But then as soon as they did that, God made a promise that he was going to send somebody to come and restore uh, this world. And that person would be known as the Messiah, the anointed one. And we see this happening at Christmas time when God gave us his son, Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. So Jesus coming to us is his first coming. It's his first advent. And he lived perfectly on our behalf because we failed to live perfectly. And then he died on the cross for our sins because the penalty of our disobedience is death. And that's what Jesus was doing as he was hanging there on the cross. But then he resurrected two days later, three. He resurrected and in his resurrection, he, he showed that in him, you can have life with God forever. And then he sent his disciples out into the whole world to make ba- uh, disciples of all other nations, to tell people of this great news. And there was about 120 of them. And I'm sure they were like, how in the heck are we going to get this message out to the whole world? And Jesus said, just do it. Go start talking about it. Hence, we're here in Sparks, Nevada, sharing the good news this morning. And then he promised that one day he would return again. And when Jesus returns again in his second advent, he's going to defeat all of his enemies and restore this broken world perfectly. He's going to get rid of all evil. So we in history today lie in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and Psalm 2 alludes to them both. This is God's son. So we're going to break this passage down in three ways. We're going to look at first how this son will be rejected. Second, how this son has been established. And third, how the son can be our refuge. So first of all, we have to think about the rejection of God's son. Let's read the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This passage begins with the psalmist lamenting, almost frustratedly praying to God, saying, how come the nations are all opposed to Jesus? How come they're opposed to you, God? Everywhere I look, people are trying to gang up on you and by extension on those who follow you. It says that the 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 nations are in rage against God. This word rage means to clamorously stand against. It's a term that would be used of horses as they are getting ready to go in battle. They're just, they're just, you know, just getting ready to go against the enemy. And the picture here is this is humanity standing against God. And the psalmist is saying, why are the nations standing against you? And it says that they're not only against God, but they're against God and his anointed. Now, this word anointed was a word that was used for Israel's kings. Because when they became king, they were anointed with oil. And it was supposed to be a symbol of God's blessing, God's authority, and God's rule. But all of Israel's kings failed to to, uh, exercise their lordship perfectly. And so God promised that he would send them a better king. And this king 
king became known as the anointed one. And this was written in Hebrew. And the word for anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. Now the New Testament is written in Greek. And guess what the word for Messiah is in Greek? Christ. So what that means for us as we read Psalm 2 is it can be accurately translated like this. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. This psalm is a foreshadow, though it was written hundreds of years before, that God has always planned to give us his son, but God knew that his son would be rejected. His son would be rejected. And the response to God's son is in verse three. People are gonna say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's get rid of their rule. Let's rule our own lives. You see, that's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is to reject God's loving rule in your life and to wish that you could rule your own. The essence of sin is to think that you are more free on your own than you are in alignment with God. But the Bible says we're actually most free when we're obedient to God. And we see this everywhere in our culture, right? Like our culture tells us that obedience to God takes away your freedoms. Our culture tells us that if you want to be happy, don't obey God, obey your heart. Our culture tells us that, yeah, you can obey God, but that's boring. If you want to have fun, break his commands. Highway to hell. Let's have a party. Our culture tells us that a God who wants to be the sovereign ruler of every aspect of your life is a cruel slave master and must be rejected. But this is the essence of sin, and it's no surprise to God. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, he promised that he would be rejected right here in Psalm 2. And this is a part of the Christmas story. It's not a part of the Christmas story that we like to talk about, right? Like we like to talk about the the parts of the Christmas story that make us feel warm and gooey inside and But this is a part of the story that that we need to talk about. And as much as Jesus came to bring peace and joy, he also came to be rejected. And it's right there in the story. Remember where Jesus was laid after he was born. He was laid in a manger. Why? Luke tells us because there was no room for him in the inn. There was nobody who had the compassion in their heart to look at Mary who just had this baby and say, you know what, I'll sleep with the animals. You can come inside. From the time that Jesus was brought into this world, he was rejected. He was pushed away. Think about it. uh, After Jesus was born, they took him to the temple to be dedicated to God. And when he was taken to the temple, there was an old man named Simeon there. And he picked up Jesus and he praised God because God had kept him alive in order to see this Christ. And he's praising God. But then he says this, this child is appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. In other words, Simeon prophesied that this child will lift up many, but because many will reject him, many will fall. He will be rejected. And then consider the Magi too, the wise men who traveled from the east to come and see the child Jesus. They got to uh, Jerusalem and they thought that that's where he would be because that's where kings are born. And they go and they they visit a guy named Herod, who the Roman government had appointed as a demi-king over the area. And they say, hey, we're here to visit the king who had just been born. And Herod talked to his officials and said, is this true? Go, Go search the Bible and see what the Bible says about this. And his officials came back and said, yeah, there's supposed to be a king that's born in Bethlehem, which is about eight miles away. 
And so Herod said, you know what? Why don't you go and visit this king and come back and tell me where he is so then I can go and visit him too. But he had an intention that was evil. An angel of the Lord visited the Magi and said, don't go back to the king. And so when the Magi didn't return, Herod was in a rage, but he was also jealous that there might be another king greater than he who was over going to take his rule. And so what did he do? He had all the children, two years and younger, in that entire area murdered. Genocide. Because he was jealous of the kingship of Jesus. This is a picture for us, church. That Jesus will be rejected always and forever. What makes us think that following him won't cause us to be rejected also? I think that's the point. That's what the psalmist is is singing here. It's a call for us to remember that if we choose to kiss the sun, we must be ready to embrace the blows of the enemy. This was very true as, as soon as Jesus went back to heaven and the church was started, the church was immediately persecuted. The religious Jews hated the church because Christians were proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, that he did die for our sins, and that he is alive. He resurrected from the grave. But more than that, they proclaimed that you, religion's not enough to save you. You cannot be good enough to get your way to God. You need a savior. And religious people don't like that message because religious people love to think that they're better than others. And religious people love to think that they have earned some special favor with God, but that's not the gospel message. And so the church was persecuted. And then the the Roman government hated Christians because Christians were so stubborn, they would refuse to say that Caesar was Lord of all. And they said, no, Jesus is Lord of all. And so they were fed to the lions in the arena. And the Roman culture hated Christians because Roman culture had a a vast amount of gods. And they said, you know, you can get to God any way that you want. But Christians came and said, no, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. And so the Roman culture persecuted Christians. And then in society as a whole persecuted Christians because uh, the Roman society was, was very hedonistic and based on power. There was a lot of racial divides and class divides and it was very sexually driven. But Christians following in Jesus's footsteps lived pure lives. They cared for the poor and their churches were made up of many different types of people from many different races and, and many different classes. And so they were rejected because they were breaking social norms. Church, what this shows us today, what part of the Christmas narrative is supposed to remind us is this. If we choose to align with Jesus, we too will face rejection. It's not a fun thing to think about, but we must think about it. Jesus is the light and darkness hates light. So if you choose to live a sexually pure life, according to the standards of the Bible, you will be mocked. If you choose to proclaim that all people are sinners, nobody is good, and everybody needs a savior and a personal relationship with Jesus, you will be rejected. If you choose to align yourself with the opinion of Jesus on political matters and not a particular political party, you will be resented. If you choose to generously care for the homeless, poor, and addicted, and even the unborn, you will be called stupid. If you choose to extend radical hospitality to orphans, widows, and sojourners, 
you'll be called foolish for putting yourself in harm's way. If you choose to forgive your enemies, you'll be called a pushover. If you choose to stand up and boldly mend racial divides, you're going to be scorned. If you choose to claim that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, you're going to be called evil. If you choose to call people to repent of your sins, you're going to be called hateful. Church, to kiss the sun is to embrace the blows of the enemy. But don't let that throw you off. You're in good company. (laughs) This is exactly where the God of the universe chose to be. He could have come in any way, but he chose to come in a way that he was rejected. We're in good company. And if you're not a Christian, if you're new to this whole church thing, I think it should pique your interest at least a little bit that the Christian God is a God who is willing to be rejected for the sake of love. There's no other God, no other worldview that has a God like that. Secondly, this child is the son of God who has been established. It doesn't matter how much fit the world tries to throw against Jesus. God has already established him as king. We see this. How does God respond to the rage of humanity? Look at verse 4. He laughs. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs. Uh, it reminds me of a, a, a rapper, uh, Shylin. He has this line in one of his songs where he says that man trying to fight against God is as ridiculous as an army trying to conquer another country with squirt guns and super soakers. They're just like, really? You're going to come at us with squirt guns? Like man trying to oppose God and ball up your fist towards God is like a little kid trying to ball up his fist and try to take on a UFC heavyweight champion of the world. Like God just laughs. It says he holds them in derision. Like God's like, (laughs) you're so cute. Like you're going to come against me. I'm holding you together right now. I'm holding all the galaxies in just the right distance and rotating them all, all at once, so that life can happen on earth and no other planet. I am the one making your heart beat right now. I'm the one giving you a brain. I'm the one who has, you know, who's given you a mouth to even talk to your friends. This is really cute of you. God looks at the opposition of mankind and laughs. This is why the psalmist says in verse one, why do they plot in vain? Church, we need to know that all of our attitude that is against God is just vain. It's empty. So not only does God laugh, then he rebukes. Look at verses five and six. It says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God will speak in his wrath. Now, the Bible says over and over and over again that God is patient. Hallelujah. God is patient, but he's only going to hold his tongue for so long. He will speak. And it's in his wrath. It's not a term we like. But it's it's not a term we like because we think about our wrath. Our wrath is unjust. Our wrath is just, it's it's compulsive. It's uncontrolled. We get wrath for silly reasons, like our Christmas lights having a strand that's broken, and then we throw stuff. (laughs) 
Or even for just reasons, we have wrath, but it's not exercised justly. God's wrath is calculated. God's wrath is patient. God's wrath is perfect. God's wrath is controlled. God's wrath is just. And he speaks in a way that terrifies. A lot of us are like, I just want God to speak. Be careful how we ask of that. Because God, when we stand in opposition to him, God speaks in his wrath and he rebukes. And the content of his rebuke is this. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That word Zion is another name for Jerusalem. I have set my king in Jerusalem. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Where did he die? In Jerusalem. Where did he resurrect? In Jerusalem. It is there that God has declared, my son is king. This is why Jesus, before he left earth, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. God has firmly established Jesus as king. This is what the first coming of Jesus is about. And then Jesus affirms, or God affirms Jesus. He says in verse 7 and 8, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is saying, God God is speaking to Jesus and he's saying, today I have begotten you. Now what that means is simply this. The word begotten means to come from. Jesus proceeds from the Father. But when Jesus was born on earth, it's not like he came into existence. Jesus has always been in existence with God because Jesus is eternally God. So the Athanasius Creed puts it rightly when they say that Jesus is eternally begotten from the Father. There was never a time when Jesus was not. But when Jesus took on flesh and humanity, God was simply declaring to the world what has always been true of eternity, that Jesus is the king of heaven and that he is God's son. So he comes from the father and God is like a proud father saying, today I'm declaring that this is my son. Perhaps that's why he hung a star over his manger. Because God, like a proud father, wanted the whole world to see, this is my son. I remember when I first had our first kid, I literally took him out and I was showing him to strangers in the hallway. This is my son. And this is what God is doing for the whole world and hanging a star above uh, Bethlehem. God has affirmed him. And then he says, I'm giving you everything, all the nations. There's not an area of this world where your rule will not reach. And then in verse nine, he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is an allusion to Jesus's second coming. In Jesus's first coming, God established him as king. In Jesus's second coming, Jesus will bring all nations who are opposed to him under his rule. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. So the big idea for this section is simply this. How does God respond to the rage of mankind? He laughs. Then he rebukes and then he affirms his son. God is not dismayed by the opposition of the enemy. And for us, what that means is if God is not dismayed, neither should we be. It doesn't matter how dark the darkness gets. The darkness will never overcome the light. Hallelujah. Man, I hear Christians sometimes being like, oh my gosh, the world is just terrible. Like Satan is ruling. No, Jesus is ruling. The darkness will never overcome the light. 
It doesn't matter how hard humanity tries to dethrone God. His throne is established. And it's not by popular vote. It's not a democracy. It's not like Jesus won most likely to be king in his high school yearbook. Jesus is king based on the authoritative word of God. Man will wither away like grass, but God's word will stand forever. It's like playing king of the hill. Any of you kids in here play king of the hill? You should. King of the hill is a great game where somebody stands on the top of a hill and says, I'm the king of the hill. And then everybody else uses all means necessary and cheap shots necessary to try to take them off the hill. And I remember playing this as a kid with my older cousins. And I, would, I was dirty. I had to be. But because my cousins were a lot older and a lot bigger than me, they just pushed me down the hill. Their feet were firmly established. And that's a picture for us. It doesn't matter how hard we clamor against Jesus. His feet are firmly planted there. His rule has been established. And Christmas church is a celebration of that. It's a celebration of light breaking into darkness. And since God is not dismayed, we should not be either. So what this means for you, Christian, is keep serving. Keep loving. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep sharing how God is working in your life. Keep praying for your friends and neighbors and coworkers and keep inviting them to church because God is not dismayed by opposition. It reminds me of the ministries of several great ministries like Elizabeth Elliot, who went down to Ecuador with her husband. Her husband was murdered there by one of the natives, but then she went back and translated the Bible for them. And because of that, many of them became Christians. It reminds me of the ministry of Hudson Taylor, who went to China and faced a lot of opposition. He was a doctor and a preacher of the gospel, but he just kept on serving and loving and preaching the gospel. A bunch of people joined him because of that. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese became Christians. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul as he's proclaiming the gospel in all these different cities. One time they, they stoned him. They pelted him with rocks until they thought he was dead and they left him out there for the dogs. But then he got up. He went back into the same city and left the next day to plant another church. Christians have always had this wild resiliency because we know that our king is on the throne. And when you know that the king is on the throne, it gives you both boldness and patience because you don't have to beat people over the head to try to get them to believe. You can just continue to lovingly and patiently share the gospel with them, knowing that Jesus will do his work. So church, I have a question for you. Has the fear of rejection stopped you from doing God's work? Has the fear of being ridiculed stopped you from sharing the gospel? A lot of times we think that sharing the gospel is saying God bless you at Starbucks when you get your coffee. That's not the gospel. Amen. Which God are we talking about? We need to be sharing that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Savior, that the good news that he has come to die for sinners. That's the gospel. But has the fear of rejection stopped you from sharing? Has the hard work of doing gospel work and serving and loving sinners made you want to give up? Church, take heart. God is not dismayed by opposition. And in him, you can find strength to do that too. To kiss the son is to stand with Christ in his rule. The last thing about Jesus here in this section is this, is that the son has not only been given to us to be our ruler, but he's 
given to us to be our refuge. In verses 10 through 12, the psalmist shifts who he's speaking to. He starts speaking to the nations. And that's very important because in the first few verses, the psalmist is lamenting the nations, but now he pleads with the nations. Look at what it says in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? He, he's speaking to those outside the faith and he's saying, please stop, stop your rebellion against Jesus. Be wise, be warned. Look at what God has given us. Serve him. You can't hail the king and make war on him at the same time. Hail the king, kiss the son. He's pleading with them. He says, rejoice with trembling. This is the appropriate response to Jesus. And this is what we need to think about at Christmas time. Rejoice with, with trembling. As Christians, we should be happy God has given us his son, but we should do that with trembling. It's like if you were to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're like, this is awesome, but you do it with trembling. I like how my friend Ty Neal in Las Vegas says it. I've used it a lot here, but it's a good thing to remember is it's like petting a, a lion. You rejoice, this is so cool, but it could also destroy me with one swipe. It's like when you lay down in the middle of the desert and you look at the sky and you see the, the millions of stars, you rejoice because it's awesome, but you also do so with trembling because you know how small you really are. This is what we're to do at Christmas. This is what we're, our response to this child is, is to rejoice with trembling. And the psalmist says, do this, otherwise you're going to perish. And I want you to see that this is the psalmist's gracious call to those outside the faith. It shows us the heart of God. God is a God who will judge. It says in Ezekiel 18 that he will judge. But it also says that he does not desire the death of the wicked. That he wishes that all would turn to him and come to him. And you know, a lot of people ask me, Pastor, if Jesus is going to come back, why doesn't he just come back right now? Because he's waiting for more people to turn to him. That's why. He's waiting for you to come to him. He's waiting for us who've, who've been resisting him for so long to come to him so that we will not perish. This is what Jesus says in John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So why did Jesus come? Not to condemn us, but to save us. Isn't this illustrated in how he came? A baby in a manger? Growing up alive, he grew up in the town of Nazareth, 400 people as a carpenter's son. Even his ministry, he hung out with those who were rejected by society. He was hanging out with notorious sinners. Jesus came in his first coming in humility because it's God's gracious hand to us saying, will you please turn to me? Will you please come to me? Can God have sent, could God have sent a more tender invitation to us than a child in a manger? It's God saying, please come to me because the second coming of Jesus is not gonna be like that church. 
At the end of the Bible, we see how Jesus comes. He doesn't come as a baby in the silent of the night. He comes with the trumpets of angels. He comes riding a white horse of victory, hair white as snow, eyes blazing fire, pulling a sword out of his mouth and king of kings and lord of lords tattooed down his leg. He comes in glory and power. And on that day, he comes to destroy all of his enemies. So why wait to come to him? That's what it says. His wrath is quickly kindled. That's a bad translation there. It should be more like his wrath is suddenly kindled. Like his return could happen any moment. So if that's the case, then don't wait to come to him. The psalmist is pleading with you. Many of us outside the faith are like, I got some more sinning to do. I'll come to Jesus at the end of my life on my deathbed. Tomorrow may not happen for you. So come now to him. Now I've been reading this over and over and over again all week. And um, I've been baffled by this one concept in this. The Psalms were not outside. They weren't people outside the faith songs. The Psalms were the songs of Israel, the songs of the faithful. You know, when you go to some old school churches, they have hymnals and that, that's like their songbook. Those are the songs. Well, for Israel, the Psalms were their hymnal. That was the songs that they sang. And what that means is, is that the audience of these Psalms was mainly those who call themselves faithful, not those outside the faith. And I've been asking myself the question, if that's the case, if it's the faithful ones who are going to be hearing this message, how come there's this section at the end of Psalm 2 that addresses those outside the faith? How come there's this section that addresses the nations calling them to repent? And I think it's for one purpose. Don't miss this. I think it's for this one purpose. Because it doesn't matter how faithful you are, there's still a part of your heart that acts like the nations. There's still a part of our hearts that wants to resist the rule of Christ. And so as much as this is a plea to those outside the faith, it's a plea to those inside the faith. Don't be like the nations who raise against God. Search your heart for the ways that you're trying to cast off his loving rule and repent and come back to him. Kiss the son lest he is angry with you. Now, what burdens me really badly is around Christmas time, millions all over the world flock to church. And they fill, the, they fill it thinking that by being in church, they are the faithful ones. But then they go about their lives living to hail themselves instead of hailing the king. And this psalm is an invitation for you to not be a Christian by name only, but to be a Christian from your heart. Kiss the son lest you perish in his way, because Jesus will oppose all that stand opposed to him. Now, we might ask the question, if Jesus is going to oppose all those who continue to stand opposed to him, and if it's true that every one of us has a part of our heart that is still in opposition to his rule, how then can we be saved? The answer comes for us in the last line. Let's read it all together. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I like how Alistair Begg, the great Scottish preacher, says it. There is no refuge from God. There's only refuge in God. It's a very true statement. 
When Jesus returns, there is no refuge from Jesus. There's only refuge in Jesus. So the offer is, yeah, we all have hearts opposed to him. How then can we saved? To find refuge in him. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right before he went to the cross, he took a piece of bread and he broke the bread. Very significant. He broke it and he, and he passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. What he was saying in that moment is, tomorrow I'm going to the cross. Tomorrow I'm going to be dashed to pieces so that if you believe in me, you can be made whole. Tomorrow I'm going to be torn apart so that you can be brought together. Tomorrow I'm going to be accused of your sins so that you can be forgiven. Tomorrow as I hang there on the cross, I'm going to face a brutal death so that you could receive the life of God. Jesus breaking the bread was him saying, the only way for you to have refuge in me is if you let me be broken for you. Jesus on the cross is taking our place to give us a safe place. And that's our only hope. And that's what Christmas is supposed to be a reminder of. Can you imagine this love of this child? He's born laying there in a manger knowing that he will be dashed to pieces. But he's willing to do it for you. If you ever question if you're loved or not by God, you need to look at the cross. And you need to see this baby being rejected from birth because that is where God was willing to go so that you could be accepted and you could be wanted and you could be loved. So church, do you see how Jesus is God's son and his plan to overcome evil with love? And will you kiss the son today? Will you stop hailing yourself and things of this world and the lesser glories of life, and come to him this day to hail him. Don't wait for tomorrow. It might not come. Kiss the sun today. Let's pray. God, this, this text is kind of intense. We ask that you would give us hearts to come to you, and we ask that you would help us to deny the areas of our life where we're trying to get rid of your rule. We ask that you would motivate us towards this by your love. And I pray for those particularly in our midst who who aren't yet Christians, who are just investigating this, that they would really contemplate that you are a God who loves them so deeply that you would be willing to be broken so that they could be made whole. And I pray for those of us who are Christians that we wouldn't forget this during this time of, of Christmas, that our lives would not be overrun with busyness, that we would miss this, this willingness of yours to be rejected. Help us to know you and to love you and to align with you. Help us to kiss the sun. Amen.